Hey, good morning, y'all. I want to ask Richard to stay up here for a minute. Um, many of you probably know, and if you don't, I'm going to let you know right now, that uh, Richard, our men's pastor, his father-in-law, Jack Massey, passed away super early, went home to be with the Lord uh, super early Friday, Friday morning, um, Rhonda's dad. And I want to just, uh, well, I want us to pray, you know, with Richard and with their family, but I also want to tell you a little, just a little snippet. This, this is, Jack, his name was Jack Massey. This is his Bible. When Richard got his Bible, I guess, yesterday or Friday. Yeah, yeah this is a Bible he's had for and, and you, years and years, and I asked uh, Glenda, his wife, gotcha. if I could if I could look through it. So. And so his Bible was was bookmarked in at Psalm 1. That's where it was. And he had, and he was, not, if you've ever seen Richard's Bible, dude, you can't hardly read the words for all scribble. his words scribbled scribble. all over it. Well, Jack was not like that. Very <laughs> few little things like that, but he did have a few things underlined in Psalm 1, and that's what was bookmarked. And I just want to tell you, and then I want to tell you why I'm telling you this. Psalm 1, uh, and I'm I'm using my phone because the letters are bigger than they are in this Bible. <laughs> so, so, but Psalm 1 begins with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And he goes on, David goes on a little bit. But then verse 3 says, He, the man who doesn't walk in the ways of the wicked, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Well, Jack Massey, he didn't grow up in a... I don't know that he did or didn't grow up no, in a Christian home. No, he was unchurched. Home. Okay, was so unchurched. didn't grow up in a Christian home, wasn't saved as a child, wasn't saved as a teenager, wasn't saved as a young adult. He gave his life to Christ when he was 46 years old. Glenda was not a believer. Their children were not believers. Jack gets saved when he's 46 years old. What you reckon happened? Glenda got saved. Holly, their daughter, got saved. Rhonda, the daughter, got saved. Jay, the son, got saved. What you reckon happens with those, those people's children? and nieces, and nephews, and cousins, and all of this, it comes from one man given his, and super odd at 46 years old. Mm -hmm. Amen, right, no doubt. So, you know, and I told Glenda last night, we were hanging out with them, Susan and I were, and I said, you know, assuming the Lord doesn't come back in the next 100 years, 100 years from now, when there's grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren, (laughs) and all these people are following Christ, and they all look back to a 46-year-old man. That's right. Think about that, man. Lineages change. Families, lives mm-hmm. change because one man bowed the knee. Wow. Mm. Like, that is a big, big wow and an amen. So, mm. you know, and, it, and it's, it's funny too, funny, ironic that when you're a, when you're a believer and a believer physically dies, and we say, because Richard called me Friday morning about 6 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock, and said Jack went home to be with the Lord. Well, we almost, that's almost like it's cliche when yeah. people say that. But if you're a believer, and you really believe that what you believe is really real, and it's not just some, some crutch that we made up to make you feel better, he really is at home. He really is in the arms of the Father. He really, it's real. Y'all get that? It is real. It's not just a, it's not just a crutch. And, you know, he was unconscious for about the last two weeks. <clears throat> and and I, somebody said he just wasn't aware of what was going on. And I said, well, he is now. <laughs> He's more aware than he ever was in his entire sure. life. And so I just want y'all to, to, to just know and think and feel and marinate on if the gospel is real, then when you die, you really physically die. You really are in the arms of, of the Lord, yeah. and it's real. Amen. It's tangible. So we love y'all. Let, yeah. let us, y'all, uh, let's just pray together. Lord, we love you today, <laughs> and we thank you for Jack Massey's life. Lord, we thank you for Richard and Rhonda and their whole family. Lord, we pray blessings on Miss Glenda. <clears throat> Lord, that... Uh, it's a weird thing because all she was doing is smiling, at least when we were there yesterday. But she's smiling because she knows her loving man is with the Lord and that it's real. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for his legacy. We thank you for his, uh, for his funny little sayings. Um, and they really are funny, and I can't repeat them in, this, uh, in where we are right now, but they're funny. And so, Lord, we thank you for that and his sense of humor and his family and, 
And Lord, more than anything, we thank you for the salvation that you offer that he grabbed a hold of at the age of 46 and led his family into a relationship with you. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, bro. So, look, y'all, we are, <clears throat> we are not, um, we, you know, I hope you got the little piece of a worship guide when you walked in. It's got some, some passages on it. But today, we're going to be a little different. You know, we're not going to have three or four bullets and fill in the blanks and so forth. Um, you're just going to have some scripture, and, and we're not going to be in Romans today. We'll jump back into Romans next week. You know, a couple of reasons. First and foremost is, is this. Thursday night, uh, I had, personally, I had a super, super real Jesus moment is, I guess, what I'm going to call it. Uh, and it was, and I was really, I was kind of overwhelmed. I really was. I'm going to be super transparent. I was overwhelmed. Thursday nights, we have a growth group um, that I lead. We're studying the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. And we've been walking through Matthew verse by verse by verse. We've been walking through it. Uh, this is February. We started last February, so we've been doing it for 12 months. We're in chapter 12. And so because we're walking through verse by verse, Zoom Bible study, we started when COVID kind of showed up and people wanted to study verse by verse. So we've been really, really digging in to Matthew verse by verse, and we're in chapter 12, and, and Thursday night, I was just very over, overcome with emotion, honestly, um, and, and, and it's, it's funny, I would imagine that most of you, if you are a believer, then you have different little pieces of scripture, you know, whatever it is, it may be something in John, it may be something that Paul wrote that you kind of, maybe you locked onto it, and it was, you know, St. Augustine, the book of Romans, led him to Christ. And so it could be, I don't know what it is for you. It's something probably in Scripture that kind of led you into a relationship with the Lord. And for me, there was a few different things that did that. Roman, uh, excuse me, Matthew 12 was not one of them. So it was kind of weird that all this happened as we're studying uh, Matthew chapter 12. And during this week, I had a little bit of extra time, and so I was digging in, getting ready for Thursday night, had a little extra time and I was digging in to the context in, in Matthew 12 and just really marinating on it and reading it and studying it and praying over it and so forth, really looking at, at chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, a little bit of 5, 6, and 7, but 8, 9, 10, and 11, how they led up into chapter 12 and looking at what happened over time. Anyway, rabbis, particularly a rabbi in the third century, he records and he says and he makes this claim that Moses, when Moses goes up on, goes up on the mountain, and, you know, Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, and so Moses goes up on the mountain. When he comes down and, he, and, he, and over time he pins those first five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Pentateuch, he pins those. And this rabbi in the third century said in, in that Moses records 365 negative commandments and 248 positive commandments and if you use your little abacus and do the math you got 613 Old Testament laws you think there's a big 10 there's 613 Old Testament laws Old Testament commandments and then King David about uh, I don't know 500 years say later King David reduces those in Psalm 15 David reduces all of that, and he says you can sum it up with 11. He said, I got 11 that you can sum those up with. And then Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 33 of his prophecy, he takes those and he said, no, I think we can reduce them down to about six. And then Micah, the prophet Micah, in chapter 6, verse 8 of his prophecy, he takes it and he kind of reduces it down to really to about three to three commands, and he says those three are to, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your Lord, with your God. And then Jesus, six, seven hundred years later, he reduces it to one. Now, he says it in many different ways throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says it in many different ways, but he really does reduce it all down into one big maybe looking at from a 35,000-foot view, one big thing. 
We're going we're gonna to talk about that today. But I want to give you a little context to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus constantly at odds with the Pharisees, the Pharisees of the Jewish leadership, one sect of the Jewish leadership, constantly at odds with them, constantly poking at them all the time, poking at them because they can't see the forest for the trees. Now, they're really, really, really good at pointing out every little flaw that every tree has. Like, they're really good at doing that. They're really good at telling all the trees how they ought to be trees and telling the trees how they ought to grow and telling the trees you need to prune this, this branch and this, that. They're really good at, at doing that. But they miss the picture that all these beautiful flawed trees come together and make up this beautiful forest. They, they miss that. And so that at the end of chapter 7, which is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. <clears throat> At the end of chapter 7, um, Jesus, uh, Matthew records Jesus' words, and, he's, and he's, uh, he, he kind of blows, I think it's verse 28 or 29 in chapter 7 of Matthew. He blows the people's minds, the people that are hearing this sermon, this long sermon. He blows their minds, and they say because his teaching, he taught with authority. He taught with one who had authority. And then in chapter 8, that's in chapter 7, then in chapter 8, he cleanses a guy with leprosy. Y'all know what leprosy is, a horrific skin disease. And, he, and so he's, he heals this guy with leprosy. People who were, who were lepers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, you know what you were supposed to do when you saw a leper? You screamed, unclean, unclean, don't come near him. Well, Jesus goes right up to him and he, and he heals him. He heals him of his leprosy. Well, you can't be touching no guy that's got leprosy. Then you've got to get yourself all clean. You've got to go into a mikvah. Anybody know what a mikvah is? M-I-K-V-A-H. It's a ritual bath. And if you ever go to Israel, you'll see the ruins of, well, they even have them today. It's like a, you step down. It's almost like what, it's almost like that but it's in the ground and you step down in it and that ritually cleanses you because you got unclean from touching the leper or touching whatever. He heals this army dude's, this is still in chapter 8, he heals this army dude's servant. He heals Peter's mama-in-law. He goes into the house where Peter's mama-in-law is and she's super sick. He don't need to be in there with sick people. Rabbis don't go in where sick people are because they get unclean. They got to go diving in the mikvah to get themselves Clean. He casts out demons. He doesn't need to be near demons because he gets unclean. He heals a bunch of other folks. Again, chapter 8, he, he, uh, he, he calms storms. He calms this storm with just his words. And then he's healing in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, he calls Matthew to follow him. Matthew is a what? Matthew is a tax collector. The most hated people in all of Israel by the Jews. He was a traitor. He's a turncoat. He's a tax collector. And so he has this confrontation, not Matthew. Jesus has this confrontation here in Matthew 9 with the Pharisees, and they ask, angrily ask Jesus' guys why they're hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. You don't need to be hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Lord, no, you don't. They're dirty, filthy, nasty animals. You don't need to be hanging out with them, they say. They're unclean. They're unclean. And so Jesus heard them ask his guys that, and then he answers in chapter 9, starting in verse 12. He says, those, they're screaming about those folks being unclean, and then Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Y'all, this is a hospital. You're in a hospital right now. A hospital is not for the well is it? A hospital is for the sick. A church should be a hospital, a rehab, I don't know, fill that blank in, for people that are sinful, which would be all of us. This is where we come. We don't exclude people that are sinful. We don't scream unclean when somebody walks in. That's crazy. This is where you come to heal. This is where you come to be loved on by your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where you come in, and we don't say you can you, you, that you don't have to check your baggage at the door. We don't say that flippantly. You don't, because you're just putting up a fake 
face when you do that because this is a place for the sick to get healed, right? Every church on the planet should be that way. And so Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then in verse 13, he's telling the Pharisees, y'all go learn what this means. And the what this means that he says is I, and, he's, and this is God speaking, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he gets questioned, Jesus does, and his guys about why are they not fasting? Because the rule says you're supposed to fast. And then he heals a bleeding woman. And oh my goodness, he doesn't need to be near a bleeding woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. He don't need to be near her because he's going to get unclean. And what happens when he gets unclean? Where's he gotta, what has he got to go into? Thank you, a mikvah. To get what? To get clean because he got unclean from this bleeding woman. So he doesn't need to be near her. And then he takes, how dare he? He takes a dead girl by the hand. He touched a dead girl. How dare he touch a dead girl? Because he's got to go into the mikvah. And he's got to do all these, he's got to make sacrifices to do all this stuff. But he brings this girl back to life. She was dead. If the Bible says she was dead, was she dead or did she look dead? She was dead. He brings her back to life. The bleeding woman, was she bleeding or was she not bleeding? She was bleeding. The dude that had leprosy, he had leprosy. Jesus healed the leprosy. And, but he shouldn't touch any of those people because the rules say, the regs say that you shouldn't do any of that. And so then he's, he's cleansing people and he's casting out demons and he's raising dead folks and he's healing sick folks and blind people can see and people that can't talk, now they can talk. And he does all this because he's showing authority ultimately over everything. He's showing authority over creation. He's showing authority over the weather. He speaks and the, and the storm stops. He's showing authority over sickness. He's showing authority over demons. And yeah, he's showing authority over death itself. Praise the Lord. He shows authority over death itself. But the, the, the big picture of all of that, the big motivator of all of the assertion of Jesus' authority, the big motivator is love. It's love. That's the 35,000 foot view. It's love, it's compassion, it's mercy. And then at the end of chapter 11, you get all this healing demon, uh, demon casting out stuff in, in 9 and 10. And then in chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, verse 28, he says, come to me. Like there's no more beautiful words on the planet. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me. He says, he says come to me. And the Pharisees had laid so, you can't, you wouldn't, you'd have to go read volumes. They laid so many rules and regulations and laws so, so many on the people that, quote, religion became labor and life became this massive burden. Anybody feel burdened? I mean, this massive thing, the whole system thing that they had created because God didn't really, that's not what he told Moses on the mountain. That happened over 1,500 years of man jacking it all up. And so this whole system thing that they had created had become this big fat noose around their neck. And it was just weighing them down and crushing them and crushing their spirit. And they can do no right because every, every which way they turn, they're getting hammered because they broke regulation 105.6 in the official judicial code of blah, blah, blah. And it was just weighing them down. It would almost be like, like I'm at work and I text Susan. And I say, honey, make sure you pick up the grain, uh, some grain at Publix because I got a grain offering in the morning. I got to be at the temple at 5.30. Oh, and pick up two pigeons for the sin offering because you know tomorrow is Monday and I got to be there as soon as the sun comes up to kill those two pigeons and make that offering. And then I'll stop by Cousin Eddie's uh, by his farm to pick up the ram, not the Dodge ram, but the ram with horns ram, because, you know, rams are guilt offerings. 
And because I forgot the pigeons last week, I'm guilty. I got I to gotta sacrifice the ram because the ram is a guilt offering. And I got to do that because the, the field manual, the rules and the regs say I got to do that because I got to keep God happy, right? I got to kill the ram because that's the only way I can keep God happy. And then I think, oh, my gosh, I can't. Don't let me forget that, that on Saturday, because, you know, Saturday, y'all, is the real Sabbath. And if you don't celebrate the Sabbath on the real Sabbath Saturday, then you must be going to hell. Right, so I got to pick up um, two male lambs, and they have to be without blemish. Think that's foreshadowing anything? They got to be perfect. These two two male lambs, and then I got to get Susan. If you'll go by Publix and get two tenths of an ephah of flour. Anybody know what an ephah is? Some unit of measure. I don't know what it is either. But she's got to get two tenths of it at Publix. Not just flour, baby. It's got to be fine flour. The manual says so. Two and some oil, because I gotta have, I gotta have the the two male lambs, the fine flour, and the oil for the burnt offering for Saturday. Every Saturday of my life, I've got to do that. Every Saturday, there's got to be the burnt offering of the two male lambs. Like that's a lot to deal with. Is that not a lot to deal with? That's what they're dealing with back in the day. But you got to keep God happy. And all of that sacrifice in their minds is what is keeping God happy. And so on the heels of all of that in their head and this noose around their neck, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. It gives a new meaning to heavy laden, a new meaning to burden. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. Come to me. So that gets us up to chapter 12. That was a... 16-minute introduction. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, and this is right on the heels of that, it says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. You ain't supposed to be going through the grain fields on the Sabbath, but he did. And it said, the, the, the Bible says his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck. If the Bible says they were hungry, were they hungry? They were hungry. They were very hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, when the Pharisees saw them coming through the fields, and it wasn't their fields, coming through the fields and picking the, plucking uh, the, grain, the heads of the, of the grain, the Pharisees said to them, look, and they're talking to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You can almost see them standing all pious with their hat and their robes saying, look, they're doing what they're not supposed to be doing on the Sabbath. But they're hungry, right? So here we go again. Don't ain't supposed to be doing that on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest, and if you're plucking grain, plucking heads of grain, then that constitutes work, and you're in violation of the Sabbath rules. You're in, in violation of, of, the, of the law. Now, I know you're not stealing the grain because they weren't stealing the grain, but you can't be picking it on the Sabbath, you rule breaker you. Then in verse 3, says, he said to them, he, Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did, King David, when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. That's from 1 Samuel 21. And he, so they say, you can't be doing that on the Sabbath. And he says, well, did you not read in 1 Samuel that, uh, that David and his guys went into the very temple and ate? the bread that was for the priests, and God didn't hammer them for it, they were okay. Did you not read that? And then he says in verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane or break the Sabbath rules and are guiltless? Because the priests in the temple on Saturday are working. It's what they do. They're killing Animals, they're slaughtering stuff, they're doing their job, they're working on the Sabbath, but God doesn't hold them guiltless because what they're doing is more important than the rules. God said it was okay for David and his men to go into the temple and eat the showbread because their hunger outweighed the rule that they weren't supposed to be doing that. Verse 6 as I tell you, this is Jesus talking again, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. What you reckon he's talking about when he says that? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. 
Now, in Jewish life, first century, well, really before that, but first century Jewish life, nothing was more important than the temple. The temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. Everything was about the temple. And Jesus says, I am more important than the temple because I'm the one that is here. So when I, this is an aside, but when people tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, it's absurd. That is a claim to be God. And does he ever say in, the, in any of the Gospels, I am God? He doesn't. But he claims to be able to forgive sin. That is a claim of deity. That is a claim of divinity. So it's absurd to say that he never claimed to be God. What do you think got him killed? The bla they called it blasphemy. Well, what was the blasphemy? He claimed to forgive sin. Well, who can claim to forgive sin? God alone. So of course he did. Sorry we went down that trail, but that's part of this passage as well. And so verse 7, it says, and this is again Jesus talking to the to Jewish leadership. He says, if you had known what this means, and he says, in fact, y'all, I told y'all three chapters ago to go learn what it means. What did he tell them in chapter 9? He said, go and learn what this means. And so it's like, go back and, and look at that. He said, yeah, you can quote it all day long. You Pharisees, you can quote it all day long, but go learn what it means. Go learn what it means. So verse 7, again, he says, I. Well, I who? I, God. I, the God that breathed life into mankind. I, the God who created everything in the universe. I, the God who put every star and every planet exactly where I wanted it to be. I am the one, the great I am. And he's like he's saying, why do y'all keep on missing the point? Like, oh my goodness, I've been telling you this for 1,500 years that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've been telling y'all that and you've missed it for 1,500 years. And he said, if you, hadn't, if you had learned what it meant, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. And then it wraps up in verse 8 with, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's not a new thing in the New Testament. 1 Samuel 15 says it. David in Psalm 40 says, In sacrifice and offering, you have not, he's talking to God, you have not delighted. In Isaiah chapter 1, it says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of, this is the Lord speaking now. He says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I've had enough of the rams and the bulls and the, and, and the, and the well-fed beasts. I do not delight, and this is what the Lord says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And then Jeremiah in chapter 7, he says, look, this is the Lord talking, Jeremiah speaking for the Lord. He says, look, this is the Ed translation, y'all, but he says, look, man, when I, when I got y'all out of Egypt, you know, God loves to remind Israel, the people, I'm the one that got you out of bondage, right? And he says, when I, when I got you out of bondage, and this is Jeremiah recording it, when I got you out of bondage, and when I got you out of slavery, I didn't go ranting and raving about, about killing bulls and killing goats. I didn't go ranting and raving about the sacrifices and the offerings. I ranted and raved about your heart. That's what he says. I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And if I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, it's about the heart. It's not about the ram and about the, the goat. It's not about that. It's about your heart. And Jeremiah records that seven, eight hundred years, y'all, before Christ. So in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 7, when Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, even in that he's looking back to Hosea, which was another about 600 years earlier. Chapter 6 of Hosea's property, pro, uh, prophecy, when, when Hosea speaks for God and he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. But y'all, as we, we just looked at, Jesus is repeating words that the Pharisees and the Jewish people had been hearing for years and years and years from uh, from 1 Samuel to David in the Psalms to Isaiah to Hosea to Jeremiah to Micah, just all over the place. So Thursday night as we're studying chapter 12 of Matthew and we looked at this scene in the first eight verses where they're plucking the grain in the field on the Sabbath 
um, and the Pharisees absolutely flip a gasket on Jesus and his guys. And the next few verses after that, where Jesus heals this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, Jesus is making a point, a huge point. Well, what's the point he's making? Love is the point. Mercy is the point. Compassion is the point. Ritual, meaningless. Ceremony, meaningless. Obedience, even obedience to the law, meaningless without a heart change. It's meaningless without, without having the right heart attitude and the right heart of love for God. If your heart is far from him, then ritual and law-keeping is just a farce. It's just fake. It's just not real. And God never wanted the Israelites' rituals. He wanted their, their hearts. The Pharisees, their hardcore regulations, their hardcore guidelines ultimately caused them to never be able to see beyond the letter of the law. It blinded them from the spirit of the law. They missed the spirit of the law for the letter of the law. They missed the forest for the trees. They missed the forest because they were too busy telling the tree they didn't like the way the branch looked. They missed that. They lost the whole point. In context, these, this thing in, in uh, Matthew 12 is about the Sabbath. And the Jews were crazy over the top, um, obsessed with the Sabbath and obsessed with the keeping of, the, of all of the rules and the laws. And basically the, the, the rules for the Sabbath were what constituted work. Right? It's what is it that constituted work? And they were so over the top about, even today, man, we're talking about 2021, still crazy over the top. I grew up turning a light switch on and off constitutes work. After sundown Friday night, because I told you all that the real Sabbath is from Friday night to Saturday night, sundown to sundown, I grew, if you flip a switch, it constitutes work. So you can't flip a switch after sundown Friday night. If I forgot to turn my light off as a kid in my bedroom before the sun went down Friday night, I'd be sleeping in the light because I couldn't flip the switch because it constituted work. That's the way I grew up. You can't start a car because an internal, an internal combustion engine starting creates work. The rabbis in the 18th century and the early 19th century, when the cars came about, said you can't do that, it constitutes work. That's why if you ever see rabbis riding a bicycle to the synagogue on Saturday, that's why they're doing it, because you can't, you can't start a car. It's the way I grew up. Believe it or not, for Jews in the time of the Maccabees, which was 100 or 200 years before Christ, when they were attacked by an enemy on the Sabbath, they let themselves be slaughtered, men, women, and children because defending themselves would constitute work and they'd rather be slaughtered than break the Sabbath rules. Now, do you think that that is really in keeping with the fourth commandment? Do you really think that is in keeping with what the Lord intended when he said, make the Sabbath holy? Make the Sabbath. Do you think that's what he meant? Like, like, I don't. Paul would say, by no means. Ed's by no means is, are you crazy? I just don't think that's not what was meant. And Jesus says in verse 8, he says, I, and you can almost see him if, you're, if you were the fly on the wall, he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Y'all are, I'm the one that wrote it. He said, don't you think I know what I intended when I wrote it? I'm the one that wrote it. And all of what y'all have done for 1,500 years has just twisted it all around. I couldn't cut a light on and off when I'm a kid. Like, really? It just it doesn't make any sense. So he says, I'm the one that wrote it. I know what I intended. Love and mercy and compassion always trump rules and regs and legalism. Does that make sense? Love and mercy and compassion always trump, always. So this Thursday night, we're studying Matthew chapter 12, and we're talking through this passage and the, the next one after that with the withered hand guy, that sounded weird, with the guy that Jesus healed that had the withered hand. And, and again, the Pharisees went nuts. How dare he heal this man 
on the Sabbath when he should have been getting ready for church. That's what he should have been doing. He should have been getting ready for church, not healing this guy who's had a crippled hand for 45 years. That doesn't make any sense to me. And in fact, this passage about the, the, the man with the withered hand, that passage ends with the Pharisees beginning, they launched the conspiracy to get Jesus killed. So if you don't think this was a humongous issue with this law breaking, this lawlessness in the grain field, know that it's what launched the conspiracy to get him killed. Those words, though, man, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Thursday night for me, those words became really real. And frankly, y'all, for 10, 8 months, we've been talking about the law because we've been walking through uh, Romans. And so I get it in my head. I get it. I get the law doesn't save you. I get it. I get it. Lots of us grew up with this idea that the law does save you. So I get it in my head, the law doesn't save you. Paul said Christ is the end of the law for righteousness in Romans 10. I get that. I get that we're, we're justified or made right before God by faith apart from the law. I get that in my head. I get don't be legalistic. I get that the law is there to make us understand our need. I get that the law is there to make us aware of our sinfulness. I get all of that, but Thursday night it became really real to me that there is more to it because I understood those thoughts, but there's more to it than that it's not just about not the law. Does that make sense? That it's not just not about the law. There's two sides of that coin. You see, sacrifice here in verse 7 of, of Matthew 12, it embodies so much. It embodies the whole ceremonial system. The whole, it's more than just the sacrificial system. It's more than that it's not just about the bull offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, that, that it's more than just not about the rules and the regulations. It's more than just not being about going to church every Sunday or quoting Scripture. You think the Pharisees could quote Scripture? From can to can't they could quote Scripture. It's more than just about the fancy big word prayers that sound so good. It's more than just not about that. You know, all those fancy words Jesus told the Pharisees, those are just vain repetitions. So it's more than that. And Hosea writes those words that Jesus quoted, Hosea wrote them 700-ish years earlier. And that word that's translated steadfast love, you'll see it in Matthew on the top of the screen and Hosea on the bottom. The Hebrew word is chesed, translated steadfast love. That word is used almost 250 times in the Old Testament. And it's super, super hard to get that into English because what you see in, in Matthew is written in Greek. So you really went from Hebrew to Greek. So it's really the same word. One is just Greek and one is Hebrew. And there's, there's more, that steadfast love, there's more in there than that. It's, it's faithfulness and, and, and loyalty and mercy and grace and goodness. It's covenantal love. It's kindness. All of that is wrapped up in that word. So it just really hit me Thursday night that the Lord's desire, that the Lord's, his very heart is to lavish us, to just wash us in his chesed, in his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his covenantal love, his sacrificial love, to just bathe us in it. And because he does that, and in response to that, he wants us to exhibit that to a lost and dying world. For us to exhibit the mercy and the grace and the steadfast love. And I was overwhelmed. Like I, I cannot even tell you. Overwhelmed to the point of tears because it, I just realized how madly in love he is with his creation. Like it's almost incomprehensible how much he is in love with man. And so I think it's this, this, this phrase, I desire mercy. I think it's a two-way street. I think there's a heads and tails. I think there's two sides of it, that he desires to bathe us in it, 
and he does. He desires to bathe us in it, and then he desires for us to display it. That's what he's looking for for me and you. He's not looking for the sacrifice. He's looking for that. The depths of the riches of his love just became realer than they'd ever been in my entire life. Heavy, not heavy like bad, but heavy like mind-blowing. Like I was just overwhelmed. And it made me think the Bible says that he's a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. He's not jealous for me to keep all the ceremony. He's not jealous for me to keep all the tradition. He's not jealous for me to keep all the ritual. He's jealous for my heart. He wants your heart. He's jealous. He covets your heart. He wants me to put my heart on the altar. We talked about being a living sacrifice last week. He wants me to put my heart on the altar. He wants you, y'all, to put your heart on the altar. And because he knows that if you put your heart on the altar, he'll change it and he'll transform it and he'll metamorpho it. We talked about that word last week. If y'all remember, it's, it means to transform. He's been in the heart transforming business forever. It's always been about the heart. And when he transforms your heart, you will be a light on a hill. Like that's what Christians are supposed to be. You'll be a light on a hill and you're a reflector. You'll reflect his chesed to your friends and you'll reflect his chesed to a lost and dying world and you'll be his hands and you'll be his feet and you'll share the good news of the gospel. It'll almost be like you can't not share him. You'll display the fruit of the Spirit. Look it up in Galatians. Love and peace and patience and kindness. Yada, all of that stuff. You'll love the unlovable. That's being a reflection of God. He loves the unlovable. You'll be merciful when you don't think that person deserves mercy. You think me and you deserve mercy in the middle of our sin? No, but we got it because he's merciful because I desire mercy, he says. And so we should be merciful. You'll show grace when the world is screaming at you to spit in their face. But what happens when you show grace when the world is telling you to spit in their face is the world looks at that and says something has got to be special about her because she just showed him grace when she should have shot him. Well, what is it that's special? What is it that's different? Christ is what is different. You're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and you're reflecting him. You'll find a need and you'll fill a need. Even when it gets sideways with tradition or ritual or ceremony because the need trumps that. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God never invented any law ever that was intended to overrule human need. Did that make sense? God never invented any law, never wrote any law that was intended to overrule human need. Ceremony takes a back seat to the meeting of a need. Working his mercy through his people. That's the way he works. When the church was birthed at Pentecost, find a need, fill a need. Find a need, fill a need. Work his mercy through his people. Well, who are his people? The church. The church. If his people hunger, he wants to get them fed. And, 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 and God never intended for it to ever be about anything other than the heart. Heart change. And over time, men and women, over about 1,500, 2,000 years, men and women twisted that, twisted God's word, and the emphasis shifted from love and compassion and mercy to check boxes. What do you think the whole sacrificial ceremonial system was? It's just this big scroll of checkboxes. Got the bull, got the goat, got the ram, got the pigeons, got the dove, got the grain. Got, that's all it was. And they thought that that was making God happy when all he wanted was mercy. I desire mercy. Now, how did that roll out over time? Think about it. I'll give you a couple of quick kind of things. <coughs> Looking at the last thousand years, you know that it was sinful at one point to enjoy sleep. It was sinful at one point to sleep in a comfortable bed. It was a sin. They would make sure that people woke them up every hour because it was sinful to enjoy sleep. It was sinful and it was forbidden to enjoy eating food. 
It was sinful and it was forbidden for a man to look in a woman's face when they spoke. It was a sin and it was forbidden to laugh. In the 1800s, they believed that it was a command for a man who was preaching the gospel to wear a black coat and a wig. And if he didn't wear a black coat, I could use probably a wig. But <laughs> if, if, he, if a, a preacher didn't wear a black coat and a wig, then he was committing a, gra- a grievous sin. In the 1800s, again, um, Protestant churches, about half of them, said it's a sin to pray kneeling, and the other half said it was a sin not to pray kneeling. They said it was a sin to, uh, to uh, wear shoes at one point. You're supposed to take your shoes off at the door of a church, and it was a sin if you came into the church with shoes on. Then it was a sin to come into the church with shoes off. Churches have had rules against against women attending church at certain times of the month. You couldn't come into the church. And husbands couldn't live with their wives during that time and still come to church. It was a sin. It was forbidden by the churches. Do you think that's in spirit with keeping keeping in the spirit of the law? I mean, like, I don't. There were rules prohibiting women from participating in prayer prayer meetings. There was rules about about preachers preaching with notes or preaching without notes. One said it's a sin. One said the other was a sin. Even today, 2021, many would tell you that it's a sin. Our musical worship is sinful. Many would tell you that. And I got one of my closest friends. We've been best friends for 20 years, and and, uh, he would not call our music contemporary worship. He would call it contemptible worship because he said that to me before. Y'all got that contemptible music over there. And I'm like, really? I think it's kind of awesome, you know. But many would tell us that it's sinful. Some would say, I've heard this, actually spoken to me that, that it's okay as long as you don't have drums or a bass guitar because the drums and the bass guitar are rhythmically sexual and that's a sin. Me too. I mean, me too. I listen to them lead us in worship and like all I can do is raise my hands up, cry and praise the Lord. You know? I don't listen to a bass guitar and the drums and think like junk. I mean, it's crazy. But many would tell us that. And so all of that history leads to a perception many times that the Christian walk is is rigid and it's hard. No. God has given us standards, but those standards, he doesn't want those standards to overrule meeting our needs or us meeting other people's needs. Serving him or showing mercy, sacrificial love, kindness, self-sacrifice and mercy are what he wants and, and that Thursday night, the scope and the magnitude of his mercy just became so real to me. I got overwhelmed and I just started crying because I thought, I deserve nothing. If I deserve anything, I deserve to get thumped off the planet. And he shows me mercy. And all I could do is hit my knees and just be so thankful at, at the, I can only say the scope and the magnitude of his love and mercy. And if you don't believe that, then I would say to ask yourself this question, why aren't you dead right now? Because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. If that's not true, I should be dead. The wages of sin is death. But in his chesed, in his mercy, in his love and his compassion, the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Like what? We say that's the good news. It's the best news that there ever could be ever on the planet. And if you grew up bombarded, and I know there's plenty of people watching or here, that you grew up bombarded with all the, quote, good Christian performance-based salvation things. I don't even know what all that is. But if you grew up that way, you got to dress this way, you got to dress that way. With all the Christianese legalism, with you can't do this and you can't do that, and you can't dance, and oh, Lord knows you can't play the drums. Going to hell if you play the drums. Sorry, bro. Like, if that's the way you grew up, if you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years old and you've been a slave, you don't even realize, but you've been a slave to the law for years, God would say, I desire mercy. 
I don't desire all of that. I don't desire that. I desire mercy. I just want to bathe you in my mercy and my love and my grace and my compassion so that you can go out and do the same thing. So, Lord, my prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would reveal yourself to us in, a, in the most undeniable way ever, that, Lord, that you would reveal yourself as, this, as a compassionate God, as a loving God, as a, as a merciful God, and, yes, as a just God, for sure. But as a God who is, is jealous for our heart, let us understand how jealous you are for our heart. And we'll, Lord, forgive us for giving our hearts to all kind of stuff that you don't want us to give our hearts to. You want our hearts. You covet our hearts. Lord, my prayer is let us put our on the altar. Let us just get our arms around at least to begin to understand that Lord, that no rule, no regulation, no, no law, no ceremony, no ritual will ever trump genuine human need. Lord, let us understand that the one thing, the one thing that trumps all of that is your love and your mercy. Lord, I pray that we can begin to understand that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And listen, y'all, if... If you've never said yes to that offer, if you've never if you've never given him your heart, if you've been given him, you may even have thought for 20 years that you were saved. And this morning, you realize maybe 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 that you weren't. Maybe you were putting your salvation in all this stuff. It's what Israel did for a thousand years. Got to keep God happy with the with the bull or the goat or the ram. So if today's a day where you said, you know what, I've been trying to please God with all of these things, all of the, the words or the doing of this or that. All he wants is your heart, and it's free. Free to you, wasn't free to him, it's free. Eternal life, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if you have never done that, I'm, I would ask you to consider doing it right now Consider not letting your head hit the pillow tonight without at least considering that offer. And if it is right now, y'all, y'all pray with me. All it is is, Lord, I, I do repent of my sin and I do turn towards you. Lord, I'm confessing with my mouth that you are the Lord and Savior. I confess that you died on a cross to, to, to take and pay the penalty for my sin. And I believe that God raised you from the dead. Save me now. Amen, and he will. If that happened to you, our prayer team is in the back. If you're watching online, let us know on an online connection card. But y'all let us know because we want to walk that, kind of walk that journey with you. Turn it back over to Stephen, worship team.